Welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockman Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. Welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike touring. You'll get insight into various cultures and countries around the world. They'll share fantastic stories of their journey, and through mine and my guest experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike touring and considering going on a tour, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. If you're already a bike tourer, I hope my guest stories allow you to relive some of your own experiences and give you a good laugh or two along the way. In the meantime, enjoy the show. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back. Before we get rolling into today's interview, I want to talk about what's going on. Uh, A while back, I think I might have been on my tour last summer, Adam Hugel, a guest that's been on the show a couple times and co-hosted a few episodes, said, oh, it'd be pretty neat if I interviewed you for your podcast after you're done your tour in the summer. And lo and behold, I don't know, four or five months later, we finally had a chance to make it happen. You know, with his new job and stuff and and COVID and the insanity of my life at the moment, it took a little while to happen, but I think it's good because it gave me a chance to think over all the things that happened in the summer and put some things into perspective and to take it from there. I did cut out some of the stuff towards the end because I think we were kind of gone off of what this podcast was about, but it is on the video, which we, we screen recorded a uh, Skype call. And that will be posted on Adam's YouTube. So if you want to check that out, uh, we were just talking a little bit about, you know, coming back to terms with the tour being over and that kind of thing. Uh, But I think then we decided we would actually record a touring talk episode about it. So I just kind of deleted it out just to consolidate things and keep them all kind of organized. So enjoy the show. Um, It's pretty neat and interesting to be on the flip side of the microphone. And um, really interesting to have somebody interview me because, you know, they ask different questions and from a different perspective than what I would have thought about. And, and I kind of enjoyed the, the challenge of it. So hope you enjoy. In the summer of 2020, Chris Panaski rode 5,521 kilometers from Vancouver, British Columbia to Whitehorse, Yukon, and then onwards east all the way to Winnipeg, Manitoba. He covered this distance in an impressive 29 days of riding, averaging 190 kilometers per day across six different major Canadian highways. This is just the most recent adventure on Chris's bike touring CV. Chris started the Bike Tour Adventures podcast in May 2019. After spending 15 years living abroad in six different countries, 
His passion for bikes and love for travel brought him to the world of bike touring. Not content with just traveling by bike, Chris has hosted many bike tours as a warm showers host, both overseas and now in his home in Canada. Chris is passionate about sharing bike touring stories and helping others learn hacks, tricks, techniques to improve their touring experience. This is a bit of a strange one, Chris. This is your podcast. So I'd like to welcome you to your podcast. Thank you for having me on my podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, it's... I'm Adam, um, Adam Hugill, and Chris has interviewed me a few times, and I've done a few touring talk episodes with Chris, and Chris has invited me to interview him for the first time. Uh, it, it's, how does it feel being sat on the other side of the screen? Yeah, it's weird. I mean, I feel like I need to talk. So, um, yeah, I thought it'd be cool. It'd be a kind of fun role reversal, since you've been on the show a few times, and... Uh, you know, I had a pretty cool experience this summer and I thought it'd be good to share and probably lots of listeners out there and, you know, they're slowly piecing things together about me and kind of just wondering if what's the whole story. So it's a good way to do it. Do you feel um, this is something that, because I've only ever been on this, well, actually, I've, I've, I've interviewed one person ever and that was my girlfriend. So it doesn't really count. It's quite easy to interview her, but she's much, she's a bike tourer and she's done, um, she's been on your, your, mm-hmm. um, TV on your podcast, so uh, is Katie. So I've interviewed Katie also um, for my YouTube channel, and I found I found that because I freestyled it, didn't have any preparation, just was like, let's do it, super chilled. For you, I wanted to prepare, and so I've done some research into your journey that you did over the summer. And actually, when you was on it, I was keeping track of it anyway. But it was um, it was quite. There's quite a lot of work to it on this side, which I don't think people realize. <laughs> yeah, I usually spend, I guess, I don't know, probably an hour to two hours per episode just preparing, kind of going through their stuff. Did you do any preparation for this one? Or do you, is it quite chilled out for you? No, I let you do it. <laughs> yeah, it's, quite, it's quite good though, isn't it? Like, yeah, yeah to, be, to be a guest, I find quite relaxing because I'm just talking about what I want to talk about or my experience. But yeah, it's, um, hopefully this one will be interesting because everybody I think knows you and you've, how many episodes now have you? Like it's over a hundred, hundred. No, well, oh, sorry. Yeah. If you count all the daily ride casts and the touring talks and stuff, yeah, it's probably around a hundred, but interviews specific, I think, I think I released episode 43 and I got a few I recorded still to release, including this one. So yeah, just about 50. Congratulations on that so far. Yeah, Yeah, because I think sticking to anything's the hardest part. As I mentioned with YouTube, sticking to it's really, uh, that's the game. I think if you stay in it long enough, people will find what you're doing hopefully interesting. And find this talk interesting. Um, We're almost certainly going to go off piste and talk about lots of varied things that interest us. Um, And really, I think this is a real good opportunity for people to get to know you. Because I think. We'll, we will talk about your journey that you did this summer and when you, like, as I mentioned in the intro, bike through Canada. But I think I know a bit about you, but for me, it'd be quite interested. I'm, I'm interested to know like where you're from. And Canada, eh? I know that you speak um, Russian. So, um, yeah. yeah, if you want to go, go from there and just tell me what, what it was like growing up and where, where are you from? So I'm literally from Kingston, Canada, uh, not upon Thames. Uh, yeah, I, my dad was military, so he's Ukrainian-Canadian. 
about 100 years they've been in Canada, so it's not like a, a short little stint, but compared to Brits and stuff, how long they've been in Britain, aside from all the immigration workers and stuff, you know, it's kind of the same thing. We've been there for a while. Uh, my mom's French-Canadian, so about 400 plus years here in Canada. So yeah, I've always grew up on bases, moving around and whatnot. And so moving and meeting people has never been an issue for me. I'm pretty extroverted, easy to get along with. And at the age of 23, 24, I was finishing uni. I had a Ukrainian roommate and I was talking about traveling Europe and backpacking and this and that. And but how expensive it was. And he said, uh, why don't you just go to Russia? And I was like, why would I go to Russia? He's like, go to St. Petersburg. I was like, why St. Petersburg? It sounds terrible. He says, it's cheap. It's beautiful. Amazing party life. And the girls are really hot. And I was like, go to Russia. <laughs> how much of that was correct? Was that all, was that all true? <laughs> <laughs> In no particular order. Oh, sweet. So what year was you in Russia? Uh, 2000, October 2004, I went and I was there until July 2007. That's a good stint. So you've seen all all the seasons, the winter, oh, followed yeah. by winter. Makes Canadian winter look mild. <laughs> yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. And is it... Um, was and this is probably a bit of a segue into biking. Was you into biking then, or was this something that came later in your life? Good or? question. I was into biking before that. Growing up, I had a pretty sweet mountain bike. I bought it for a thousand dollars off a, a military guy that needed to fix his car. So kind of got right opportunity. Cannondale Super V one thousand was what it was. It was an alloy. That's a good memory. That's really yeah, good. Yeah, it's a, it's an alloy bike. It was worth about five grand new and wow. it got stolen in around two thousand two or three in Ottawa. And I bought a road bike on a whim because a girl I knew said, You should try road biking. I was like, Girl, road biking. Okay. So I did and I didn't love it. And I didn't really get back into biking until two thousand nine. So it's quite a few years later. Yeah. Russia was predominantly drinking and partying. Yeah, but that was your 20s, early 20s? Yeah, mid-20s. Yeah. Yeah, so I think we have these, I think, phases in our lives, don't we, where we go through different different things that are important to us at that time. Um, I I think you see a lot of people as they get older start to see the bike as a means to travel because... Mm -hmm. They have done the backpacker routes and they've been to a thousand hostels and it can start to feel same, same. And, and did, I know, I, I know this already, I think, but and did you, you live in Sweden as well? Yeah. Sweden was quite a while later. That was 2015. So prior, okay, right. after Russia, I lived in Korea where I didn't bike either. Um, I just didn't have one with me and I didn't spend the money, but yeah. in Korea, I started to to, to get away from the daily drinking and just go to the binge weekend drinking. So it's kind of a step up. Uh, but I was exercising all, <laughs> I was exercising every day in the week. I was, you know, running, going to the gym, martial arts. Was you, was you running because you were probably drinking too much to like offset? It was like, if I run yeah. and exercise, I can still have a good time. <laughs> I got pretty fit, but I was still like, a little bit on the chubby side and, you know, not, not in my best right. shape, but I was doing martial arts and that was a lot of abs and core and whatnot. So, and then eventually in 2009, when I came back to Canada to help my dad build a house, I started road biking again because I found this old beater in the tr- the garage shed, which was what I had bought seven, eight years prior. And I rode that until I moved to Malaysia. And there I invested and got a proper 
carbon fiber road bike. And that was my segue back into biking. So, mm-hmm. so um, you and to pay in your job whilst you was in all these countries, you were t- teaching. Is that right? Yeah, I was a teacher. So I was teaching English for, for the longest time until, well, Sweden was my first international school teaching job. So before that, it was just, a, you know, ESL. English right. is a second language, whatnot. Yeah. Which, and like, I, uh, you don't know this yet. I, I don't think you do. I dabbled for a couple of weeks teaching English online whilst, whilst I had like weekends and time off. I, I was know. sat at home, locked down, winter time. I was like, oh, let's see if we can earn a bit of extra money. And I signed up to a website and, yeah, Which man, one? like, Cambly. Okay, I don't know it. So Cambly is the one that pays the least. Okay. It's got the lowest, lowest bar of entry. Okay. So you just need to be a native English speaker. Yeah. That is it. So no quals, no, mm-hmm. you don't need a degree or anything. So, uh, but it's just generally conversational English. They're quite high level, not really children. You, okay. have to, you get paid extra to teach kids. So, um, yeah, the appreciation I've got now for people that teach English, that is, it's, it's, so tricky and mind draining. Like I could, you, you have to be on, particularly if you're on a laptop yeah. doing it remotely. You're on, you're on, and then you're off, and you're like, Phew. so. Yeah, I can imagine. What did you did you find it quite intense in in Korea, particularly with the the culture Korea, that they have? There? Yeah, Korea was hard. Um, I was teaching that first year in a school of uh, it was a middle school, so grade seven, eight, nine, and each class had forty kids. I taught 30 groups for 40 minutes every week, so 20 hours, and it was just the same lesson recycled because they were all so shitty in English. It was just recycled the same lesson again and again, 30 times a week, mind draining. And, you know, you got kids sleeping in the class because they have a real huge culture of after school lessons and like going to tuition centers at night. So kids are exhausted during the day and they just put their head down and go to sleep. Where did you live? I lived in Seoul. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a, another bike touring friend who actually you probably should interview. He's really interesting. He's done a lot more cycling than me. His name's Dan. And he he um, studied, he, he's a professor, I think, back in the UK. Oh. He's like, that's, that was his old job in like environmental sciences. I think I've got that right. But then he bike toured from the UK basically to South Korea, stopped there to earn some money. Oh, and, nice. Never and, left. And he... The, yeah, well, he, he was there, I think, for two years, and I think he found a girlfriend and stuff like this. But then he um, he paid, because they pay for your flight home as yeah. part of the package. He asked them to pay, he asked to send him to uh, to the top of Alaska, to Dead Horse. Oh, <laughs> nice. Because he, he wanted to continue his bike tour. So it was quite a good way to, to get a free flight to a Dead oh, Horse, brilliant. Alaska. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was quite good. But um, so did you? So you bumped straight from Korea to then to Sweden and then to Malaysia, and with your fancy carbon bike. Yeah, so did, biking yeah, in Malaysia it was you, predominantly road biking. Just you know, restructuring the body and getting it back into a, some kind of fitness uh, took a couple of years. Uh, I did a my first bike tour was actually while living in Malaysia. I used my mountain bike, just covered it in duct tape to to make it look less appealing. And uh, flew to Indonesia for seven weeks and cycled from uh, Yogyakarta, which is the old capital, and cycled all the way down to Lombok, which is just past Bali. Of course, I took a few ferries because I'm a good swimmer, but 
the bike and stuff. So a little bit on the heavy side to swim with. So, and was that your first, what you'd consider a proper bike tour? First proper bike tour. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's for a location. That's a dream. Yeah. Yeah. So many people are like to them, that's like, that's the dream tour. And I was just like, ah, I have a Christmas holiday and I don't want to drink too much. <laughs> so I'll travel by bike. Yeah. Did you find, because I, I know that um, we've both biked to Malaysia. I've never been to Indonesia. What was the traffic like? I've heard that that's ridiculous. A, a tricky. Really? Yeah, ridiculous. Like I was driving a lot too on main highways, like not always on the main highways, but like sometimes you're cutting on the north of Java along the main highway and it's pretty ridiculous. And luckily I was on a mountain bike. So if I did hit the shoulders, it was okay. Um, if you were on a road bike, you'd probably never make it. So going up some of the hills too, I just, you know, do the toe, grab the truck and yeah, they yeah, would see I me on that. it. So instead of like being nice about it, they would ease over to the shoulder. So you have to let go because you're like, oh shit, there's yeah. a shoulder coming, you know? Like, wow. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's not nice. Yeah. yeah. When I, I've only done that in Thailand and they were all pretty chilled about it. They had no choice about letting me do it because they're yeah. going so slowly. Yeah. But that's, that's gnarly. So I think this will segue quite well later. But what was like your your daily distances and what was your touring style like on your first bike trip? First bike tour. So I, I haven't changed much in that sense. I, I do right. big days. I, I like to do big days. Um, it's just my style, I guess. Um, of course, I mean, when I was traveling with my wife, you had to slow things down a bit or push her a lot, which, you know, didn't make the relationship great. So Indonesia, I had about like 20 kilos on that bike. It was heavy, uh, way yeah. too much stuff that I never used. And first learning experience, I was averaging between 100 and I think the most I ever did on a day was 190K. But Indonesia is pretty hilly, so that was pretty rough. It was a, it was a really hard, hard day. Uh, that's a pretty a very first bike tour. That's not what I would consider in the in the comfortable category. That's that's gunning for it but I and that was i could even tell you i still remember to this day that was from i had left solo i had cycled that day up a mountain so way up ridiculous like 30 something kilometers it was a short day to see this ancient temple which was non-existent uh it was just this rubble pile not much of a temple and the next day i came flying down that mountain for about 50 kilometers and then i got onto that highway which i said was terrible and i made my way up to kadiri and it was 190 I'm thinking 194 or so kilometers. And yeah, that was my one day. I think it's more like, it's, I think like we've biked together for a few days and we, you was on your folding bike, which you were still going decent, probably quicker than me, to be honest. Um, you probably had, you had a bit less kit than me, a lot but less you're still, yeah. still going like, a good pace. But what I think is, and I don't know if you agree, like it's more time in the saddle than it is your speed. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that? It's like, I think like you've got a set speed you can really go out and maintain, but you, what you can increase really is how long you bike for. Yeah. And, yeah. I'll give you an example of that. Exactly. So this summer, which I'm skipping ahead, but I was riding with this guy named Fedor who I've actually interviewed on the podcast. And when we got onto the Alaska highway, in Yukon, uh, I stayed at that rest stop for about an extra 20, 30 minutes. And then at the top of the mountain, I called my wife because I had cell reception. So it was probably about an hour or 45, 50 minutes to an hour total delay. It took me six hours to catch up to him. 
No, maybe not. Yeah. No, I did like three and a half hours, but it had a 20 kilometer headwind. It was brutal riding. I was on my aero bars the whole time and he was, you know, riding a big clunky mountain bike. Still took three and a half hours, nonstop yeah. pushing, you know. Um, so it's just time in the saddle. Speed has a bit to do with it, but, you know, he takes more rest. He probably stopped or slowed down, took pictures. And yeah. eventually I can catch them, but otherwise probably not. I think like you and I definitely have different styles, but it's quite good that we can still, we have the connection is the bike and our styles for sure are different. But I think we have so much crossover of things we appreciate. Mm-hmm. Like I would say, I, I really appreciate the, the food. It's like one of the biggest things for me. Um, I was Indonesia as far as a first bite tour and food goes. Oh, the food was fantastic. Uh, it was cheap, cheap as chips, um, really good stir fries and whatnot, the soups. Um, you know, I don't remember everything too clearly, but it was, it was good. Uh, some of the notable, notable things was in, oh, what city was it? Jogjakarta, my very first week. So I, I flew into Jogja and I stayed there almost six days before starting the tour. So I wanted to explore the region. I went hiking with a bunch of couch surfing groups. Uh, we went to like the second biggest mountain in the country. I think it's the second biggest. Anyways, in that region, Merbabu it was called. And we did an overnight hike up the mountain. So really cool, just way to interact with locals. But in Jogjakarta, I ate dog. I had no idea it was dog. <laughs> like actual dog. The like actual dog, curry dog. No, no right. clue it was dog because I knew in Malaysia, we say daging for beef. They, they use that typically, they use it for beef, but it means meat, Right. In Indonesia, I said, what is that? And he says, daging. So I, he said, meat. But I assumed he was uh, meaning beef. And I saw the guy eating and it looked really good. So I said, well, I'll have some of that. How, how was it? What did it taste like? Honestly, it was really good. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is it. Like, I, and we, I've definitely discussed this before because of my experience in China, seeing people treat dogs badly, which I think is a bit of a different yeah. issue. but. If it's got four legs and two eyes, it's funny where we draw the line and what we yeah. eat and what we don't eat and how, how culturally that, that shifts. Um, next week, we just saying before this, I, I'm with work going to Kenya and a, a quite common thing that they eat out there is camel. And camel meat's just like, it's just the same as goat or whatever. Do you know? yeah, it's yeah. Or, or cheap so or okay. It's got to be so good. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. I suppose, yeah, if it tastes good, well, it tastes look good. At, like, in Lithuania, I had horse burgers. People were like, I can't believe I ate horse. And I was like, well, it's just a normal food there, you know? Like, it's it's just a thing. Uh, in well, Australia, they uh, eat kangaroo. And born, like, Westerners from other parts of the world would be like, you can't eat a kangaroo. They're, they're, they're so cute. And you're like, yeah. they're they're like a pest, <laughs> you know? That's it, yeah. And I think it's, it's in, I think that's part of, what I try to do when I when I travel is to not judge through my own eyes and mm-hmm. try to see things through their eyes, as in their culture, respect their culture, and and it's easy to be judgmental, as particularly when you see things you know. I will be judgmental when I see things I don't maybe think are right, like yeah. if it's cruelty. I draw a line there, but mm-hmm. but then I don't know. Like I I I used I used to live in Egypt and see go to the camel markets again, and it'd be people whipping the camels and being pretty horrendous. But they've done that for, for millennia. Years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I know that meats episode there, the dog meat. Um, I finished my food, and the guy said spoke a little bit of English. He says, "Was it good?" I said, "Oh, really good." He's like, "Dog, 
And I said, excuse me? <laughs> he says, dog. And I, the look on my face, he says, but you said it was good. I was like, fuck. Like, you're right. You got me. It was. You know, I can't, <laughs> I can't. It sucks. Like, I, I don't think I would have eaten it uh, yeah. consciously. But the way it happened, I was like, yeah, it's a thing. Well, when we was on a bike trip together, we was Honey in Cambodia. Bees, frogs. We was eat, eating the mini little capo, uh-huh. little frogs. Yeah, the yeah. little frogs and the crickets. Yeah, but, and do you know them little frogs? The Cam- and, and in Cambodia, obviously, there's the um, historical reasons why they'll eat any animal they can get hold of because because that meat is was such a scarce resource mm-hmm. during. Um, that during the Khmer Rouge time, so it's but, but a lot of that's continued, and they grow a taste for insects or yeah. bugs or or for small frogs. And the small frogs, people say this all the time, but it genuinely just tasted like chicken. Yeah, it was good, delicious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was good. Um, yeah, when the first time we met. So how many bike we we met? Do you want to describe what you was doing as far as a bike tour? Yeah, so um, yeah, two thousand and eighteen, I believe. That's uh, three years. Ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Two thousand eighteen. I was. Uh, I had just resigned from my teaching job. My wife and I were planning to move to Canada, and up came this opportunity to go to Cambodia to teach. So uh, we decided to take it. But I didn't have to be there until December first, I think. So, or was it November first? Anyways, whenever I had to be there. <clears throat> no, I think we met in November, right? Mid November uh, or mid October. Was yeah, it, it was mid, November. Uh, mid November or end of October. Yeah. So I uh, I told my wife, well, I've always wanted to go biking in Thailand, up in this Mae Hong San area, and now's my chance. She was working. And uh, so she said, okay, go for it. Like, if you have this opportunity. And she said, how long are you going to be for? I said, oh, I looked at the route, 650 kilometers. Needed to fly in, fly out. I said, I'll be back in 10 days. And she said, okay. And that's it. So I, I flew out there. Um, my first day out, I met this, uh, uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, Simon. Simon. Simon, yeah. Met Simon on the way up a mountain, and uh, he said he was meeting friends in Pi, which was you guys. And that was it. That's history. So we spent about a day in Pi, just chilling out and did some sightseeing. So, yeah, it was, it was so good. Like, you, like, I was so looking forward to meeting Simon. He and I worked together, but like when I was 18, 19, I worked in a pub, and he was the DJ in this small town in England. And out of very big coincidences, we hadn't kept in touch. He just happened to be traveling by bike through northwest Thailand, and he came across you, like you said. And um, I, I think you meet somebody on the on the side of the road, and you can have an, a connection with them. I feel sometimes stronger than someone you've known like for ten years. Yeah, absolutely. Like if you've if you've worked in an office with someone for ten years, you could be like you make do with mm-hmm. them. But then because you've got the common values i think that's the most important thing yeah i agree yeah so i think you were leading at before that is that tour when we met what t- bike touring had i done prior to that i think i, I heard yeah. you're kind of in middle of asking uh i cycled from sweden in 2015 to or was it yeah was it end of 2015 um october to berlin so i was about 550k i did that in three days uh, i was just trying to i had a i had a short holiday so Pushed it out. Did a little bit of wild camping too. That was my first experience like 
going along the side of a tree line in Germany and just trying to find a place to pitch my tent and hope not to get run over by a tr car or a tractor or something and having a terrible sleep because it's your first time. You've never done it before. And you're like, this is stupid. I'm going to get arrested. And yeah, so um, then the early days, you can't, it, it's, it's so important. And a lot of people will be scared of starting. Um, did you feel like that? Did you feel nervous to, to start bike touring or was you always confident? Um, I had done the one in Indonesia already that tour. I wasn't nervous to bike tour. Like I literally used that old road bike that I had at my parents' house because I had shipped it with me to Sweden. I shipped everything. Everything I owned went in a container, which wasn't much. Um, so I took that bike. I attached one of those floating rear racks that really suck with a little, uh, well, not so little, but a, a dry bag attached to the back of it, mounted to that. And in that was my tent, my sleeping bag, uh, a foam mattress, which really sucked, like one of those... Um, Thermo rest. It wasn't great, but it wasn't terrible. Uh, just takes a lot of space and um, minimal. That was it. That's all I had was that bag and a small backpack. If I remember correctly, I did use a backpack. Didn't love it. Uh, it's hard on the back. So no expensive gear. Nothing. No. Now everything. Yeah. I borrowed the rack from a friend. The dry bag I had kicking around. I had the backpack. Yeah. How times have changed. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we'll get onto that, I'm sure. But it's, um, yeah, I think the early days, I'd always say to people, the best bike to start on is the bike you've got. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of people can get obsessed on the internet about what gear to start with. They'll be like, I need to get this bike or mm -hmm. this, this pannier. Well, when I met you, that was the first touring bike I had. And that was a folding touring okay. bike. But that was the very first. And that's still niche. I've never seen. Uh, you're the only person I know that ever rides one of them. Yeah. Somebody, which... Somebody's got it. Like, I can so see the appeal, particularly if you're flying in and out. And the biggest pain in the backside is packing a bike for flight. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But if, if you if you want to also be able to throw it in the back of a vehicle, it's really easy. Yeah. And, and uh, I think it causes you to be a bit lighter as well. Yeah. And I've done a couple other ones, but mostly on my road bikes and, and the old gray one, that cheap one, the Opus bike. No, not Opus. Sorry. That was a, that's what I use now. It was... Um, it was, it was a Canadian brand that basically designed themselves when Peugeot left Canada. Uh, they're out of business now, but I forget what they're called. Um, anyway, so I had that bike and I rode also from Osaka to Hiroshima once and took a bus Sweet. back to Osaka. So I did oh, that. that's cool. Did that in three days as well. <laughs> you went direct line. I went down to Wakayama, took the ferry across to the island. Um, and then, yeah. And then cruised to the bridges, cross the bridges and then into Hiroshima. Oh, cool. Yeah. Ah, sweet. So we'd have done something in different in reverse. I did a similar route yeah, to that. Yeah, exactly. And then really cool. I also did Kuala Lumpur to Penang in Malaysia and did that in two days. And that was a slog. That was like 500k as well. Um, wow. That's a lot. A lot maybe a little bit closer sharp, to 450. Sharp. 225k days, I think. It's a lot of sharp, sharp tours there yeah. where you've squeezed a lot in for time. Um, so... Yeah, let's get on to the, the to this tour that you did that I introduced at the beginning in the you know, tour in Canada. Was that your first what you would consider a long, longer tour? Yeah, first long distance or longer time. Yeah, yeah. And where did the yeah? Do you want to talk about where the idea for it came about? Well, the idea for that was um, very not an idea in the first part. Um, initially, when I well, like, to be honest, I, I leveraged the podcast a bit and the website and 
talked to some Canadian bike producers and brands and Opus came through and said, well, we'll give you a pro deal, which is not free. It still costs money. Um, it essentially came to about 33% off. So third of the price off. You, you can't, can't complain with that. And I had this option. I was like, okay, well, I could buy their alloy bike, which would have cost me about $1,400 Canadian after a discount. Or I'm turning 40. I could convince my wife to let me get, you know, a new midlife crisis bike. And um, so I sold off my road bike, the carbon fiber one I'd had for some years now. Sold that off and bought that one, which was, you know, over four grand new uh, without the discount. So with the discount, it was a little bit under three. So I had significant savings, but still cost a pretty penny. Yeah, yeah. That's a decent bike. That's more than a lot of vehicles cost. And for my wife and I, who had just arrived in Canada, moved back to Canada um, in June, and this was like December, you know, we're saving for a house and we're doing all these things. She's like, is this wise? And I said, probably not, but uh, so I did it anyways. And uh, we're still married, so I guess it worked out. <laughs> and uh, so but anyways, with, with the, with the, they're also a distributor for a lot of brands. So I ended up buying a whole Blackburn, um, Blackburn bikes packing gear set basically from them too. I kind of thought up, what do I need to make this happen to be effective, to be fast? Keeping in mind things like Jonas Dykeman, who I've interviewed a few times, a couple times, how he packs his stuff, thinking about aerodynamics, with the exception of the handlebar roll. I mean, that definitely cuts down a lot on the aero factor, but you have not much choice. And I was originally planning to to do a couple long distance endurance races in Europe for 2020 summer. Of course, they were both canceled because of COVID. So I got to thinking and I said to my wife, well, I'm going to cycle across Canada or at least home. And my initial plan was to fly up to Tuktoyaktuk or to Inuvik, get to Tuktoyaktuk by cycling there. It's only about 150k, so it's not so big a deal. And that's that's the most northern most, point by yeah, road. The northmost point on the Dempster Highway. Yeah. Is it yeah. Dempster? Yeah, Dempster. But Northwest Territories was closed. So they had completely shuttered themselves. They said, because of COVID, we're not letting anybody in. And if you do come in, you have to do two weeks self-isolation in a government facility and pay for it. And I said, well, that's not going to happen. So my next plan, I said to my wife, well, why don't we fly to Vancouver together, have a bit of a holiday. We have friends there we could stay with. So we flew to Vancouver. We spent about nine days there and then she flew home and then I started cycling. And I figured, well, if I can't start in Tuk Tuk Tuk, I'm going to start cycling north and maybe they'll open it up before I get there. Yeah. And as I got into Yukon, I knew that wasn't a factor. It wasn't going to happen. And I was debating, do I go to Whitehorse, which is about, oh, I think it's like 600 kilometers north northwest, or do I turn east and start heading towards home because, you know, time and factors and all these things. But my back tire was wearing out, so I decided, okay, I'm going to pound it up to Whitehorse and then make my way back as far as I can go, so... It was very impromptu, very little planning. I mean, the day before we left, I was putting things onto my Garmin, like roots. Um, mm. So that was it. How, how did you um, feel about touring during the COVID pandemic? Because I don't really know the situation in Canada, if I'm honest. Yeah, because I think every, every country's, like I've got friends in Australia that are just carrying on like normal. So mm-hmm. I don't, mm-hmm. yeah, what was the situation like in Canada? In Canada... It was harder to get warm showers. 
So I did put out some requests for warm showers on occasions uh, when I was coming through cities and I thought it's a good chance to take a rest, uh, charge everything up, you know, get showered or whatever. And that was a lot harder. I had a couple hosts, but not many. Other than that, some of the native communities, the First Nations communities were closed to foreigners, to any mm. outsiders. So they were just completely like they had... You know, it almost seems something like out of a movie, but it was like they had big logs dragged across the entrances to their town roads. Or they put, they took tractors and moved boulders in the road into the streets type thing around to like in the intersection. Big signs, no, no outsiders allowed. It is a bit apocalyptic when you describe it like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I I follow um, the High de um, community on this. They've got a community Instagram page and I've seen even now. Even now I see that it's like due to the their leaders, they've said that it's closed to people. Yeah, no faces going there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I, I absolutely see it. I can see why. And if you can close up shop and we can look at, it's just well, not really the place to talk they, about They it. have a pretty yeah. bad history of, you know, the white man bringing disease with them. Um, yeah. The smallpox and stuff nearly wiped them out as it was, you know, like thousands and thousands died so when it comes to like a new pandemic they're like wait a second we're not taking any chances yeah so i and get you can it see that with it with all all communities even in england it's covid's largely affected those that are the poorest mm-hmm. and uh, and for, for many reasons people off um, ethnic groups the hardest um, and it can be a lot of different reasons that have caused that so um yeah if you if that that was to spread within a community where they they are in more close proximity or there's more people living in houses, it'd be, be pretty bad, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, did it did it allow you to... So you obviously had to make a new plan within the re- the re- regulations that you had. I just packed more As food. A, yeah. <laughs> yeah, pack more food. Don't go to Northwest Territories and you were still, still good to, to basically... Were the police all good with you traveling? Yeah, never had a problem. Cops. Um, I even had a, had a police officer in Yukon. He, uh, he told me, oh, when you, leave, um, when you leave this town... Oh, shoot, what the hell is that town called? Anyways, uh, the one close to where you... Teslin? Teslin, yeah. When you, when you leave Teslin, north of Teslin, there's a 14-kilometer stretch of really rough gravel because they just put new chip and tar down. Mm. I said, oh, and I was on tires that were like really getting, sh- my back tire was, you know, the bluest showing out of the tire kind of thing, you know, because <laughs> wow. um, chip and tire tears your tires apart and it, my oh, tires are getting yeah. worn quick. I've, I've got um, a friend, he's called Tim, and I'm, I cycle with him through Laos and Cambodia, Tim and Linda, and he cycled through freshly laid tarmac in Turkey. Oh, no, no, it might have been so hot, it melted it. That's right so hot in turkey that it melted the the ground they rode through it and it stuck to their tires oh, yeah. and shredded shredded all their um what they call them seat stays yeah. is that the right yeah mate shredded through the metal it just like no. destroyed the bike wow, yeah. yeah oh so, yeah that, so here in the, in the yukon <laughs> this cop that. was actually like well i gotta do a um a, a patrol up that way anyways later today in about an hour or two if you want we can throw your bike in the back of the truck and i'll take you past all that rough stuff like, oh, sure, yeah. can't, can't say no it to that. It shows you even in these times that like, I, I did a short bike tour when, when the regulations in the UK eased and I cycled through, north through the UK, but it's only like three, four days. And I got offered a lift when I was in trouble. But it shows that even mm-hmm. during the pandemic, people 
can still still be great. I, I think that that's Jim. he had his moment where he said um, he said I said, "Do you want me to put a mask on?" And he says, "You don't mind, do you?" And I said, "No, I have some. I have some with me." So he said, "Where are you from again?" I said, "Ontario." And then this look in his eyes because Ontario, you know, like the only border that was open at that time was BC to to the Yukon. Right. They, they, all their other borders to other provinces are closed. And he had this look and I said, but I was in BC for a month and okay, or for about three and a half weeks at this point. And then as we talked, I told him the natural resources cons- conservation officer at the border had made me sign a form and say, I'm going to self-isolate for 14 days. And he says, oh no, I think you're clear. You're good. I said, okay. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, it's good to be a common sense approach, which yeah. often doesn't happen. It was very weird because some people that I talked to that were like driving around in like converted vans and stuff, the simple conversions, right? Where they just put some, made a flat panel to sleep on and stuff. They got into the province and they said, yeah, I just told them I was two, three weeks or a month traveling around in BC and they let us in with no restrictions. Other people said, we got let in with restrictions because I'm from Ontario. They said, no, you have restrictions no matter what, doesn't matter where you've been. And I even told them, I said, so because yeah. I'm, I'm from Ontario, it matters where I've been. But somebody from Hungary, it doesn't matter. Like, how does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So I was just, yeah, it was just politics. Yeah, it wasn't worth like logic sometimes. Is yeah. 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 So I, I was careful. If I go in stores, I wear a mask just to be respectful and stuff. But in, in Yukon, nobody had a mask on. It was basically, they were like, there was no COVID there, basically. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe just different attitudes depending on how far away they are and. Yeah, it's, it's probably similar to different states in the USA. They'll have different attitudes depending on where, yeah. what the, the situation like is on the ground. But yeah, it's um, it's been a funny one, funny year. But when I when I looked at your stats for that journey and I saw how many kilometers you did, like five thousand five hundred twenty one. That's an that, 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 yeah, that's a beast. And you, you did that in a month. But to put that into perspective. I'd be doing well if I, oh, let me think, if I do 2,000 kilometers in a month, I'd be really happy. Okay. Right. Like, yeah. So it's hard for me to month. put perspective to somebody else, right? Like it's hard to make that connection. Yeah. Cause... So for 29 days, so it's a bit under a month, but let's say in four weeks, 28 days. Yeah. If I'm doing, um, I don't know how many average that is a day, but I, I think without doing the math now, I used to uh, yeah, for you for it's me, 90, yeah, but yeah. for me to do 2,000, oh, I think it's... I'd do it 70 or something like that. I've not worked it out, but mm-hmm. um, I could do. But I, if I got to 70 in a day, I, I felt like the day has been a success. Um, what did your daily routine look like to, to do that? I'm genuinely interested. Well, yeah. Um, I wish I could say I'm a really early riser. I'm not, so I tended to be more of a late. Really? Yeah. I was so expecting you to say I'm up at 4 a.m. <laughs> no, no. I, I always tried to get up at 5 or 6, but usually I just shuttered the alarm. And uh, so You set an alarm? Yeah. Yeah, big- yeah I would set an alarm for 5, cause thinking, yeah. okay, yeah, I would set an alarm wow. for 5 and be like, okay, if I can get up at 5, I can get up, get out of the tent, get everything packed up, have a quick breakfast, I'll be on my bike by 5.45, 6 o'clock if I'm taking it easy. And this is Canada in summer, so we're talking lots of daylight. Yeah, it's already daylight, yeah. Yeah. So that makes a big difference to your general 
mood mm-hmm, if it's mm-hmm. if it was winter or whatever you'd be like i am staying in my tent as long 10 as I can. <laughs> yeah yeah it makes a huge difference so so you find 5 a.m. alarm, up you go. And I usually uh, snooze that thing until it stopped making noise. So after I think about four times hitting snooze, uh, it's, it stops going off. So I would re- get up at around 6.15 and I'd be on the road by 7-ish if I was by myself. Um, I found once I was with Fedor, he was a little more laid back, Slovakian guy. Uh, it was usually 8 between eight and nine, but we also did a lot less distance the days I was with him. How did you find adjusting to somebody else's routines? Brutal. <laughs> yeah, no, I can not, see not, that. Not so bad, like in the sense that we were going somewhere where the Cassiar Highway, you've been there. There's a lot yeah. of bears and there's a lot of nothing. And, yeah. and you know, it's you were really just rolling hills and lots of pine. Yeah. And I think you went as far as Deese Lake from the north. So, yeah. You know, things like, um, it was, it was for safety, you know? So I, I told him, I said, okay, I think if we can average 125 kilometers a day, we can get through this in six days, I don't know, five days of riding. Cause that'd be 625, which is essentially the length of that highway. Um, or six days, 750, I think it's 750, maybe whatever, seven days. Um, sorry, 750 kilometers, six days, we could do it. And he said, oh, I was kind of hoping we could do like, he's like, I usually never go over a hundred a day. I said, well, we need to find a compromise because I would be like, I'd like to be pounding out like 180 days, you know, um, two hundreds if possible. So, so we agreed to just see how it goes and it was good. Like he pushed it. Like he had a lot of weight. He had a very awkward way of carrying his bags. Um, probably just about the worst setup I could imagine on a bike, but for him it works, you know? Like, I would never want a tour like that. It was nuts. Like, to me, it was just mental, but um, he could do it. And in what what way did he just have, like, he had a 75, he had two, he had a, he had one of those, um, I forget what brand it is, but you know where the two panniers have a top bag to it too? And they kind of hang over. Okay. okay. And that top bag would get... uh, Time for a quick interruption to thank some of the Bike Tour Adventure partners. The Bike Tour Adventures podcast is proud to be partnered with Redshift Sports. Founded in 2013 by a team of mechanical engineers who happen to be avid cyclists, they've been focused on creating components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience, such as the switch aero system, the shock stop suspension system, and the kitchen sink handlebar system. I've been using the dual position seat post paired with the shock stop stem since 2020 and have nothing but great things to say about their products. Beginning in 2010 with environmental sustainability as the main focal point, Restrap has been in the bag making business for quite some time. Having used a race back since 2021, I find their holster system and magnetic buckles to be extremely effective and truly unique. Named after the animals that roam the Tibetan plateau, Cheru Endurance Bikes was started by Pierre Arnaud Le Manga in 2009. After noticing a lack of endurance bikes on the market, Pierre used his expertise, know-how, and racing experience to create high-end carbon fiber and titanium bikes for the discerning rider and racer. For discount codes, check out the show notes or go to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast website. 
So oh, the name of the brand. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, a, it's one of the not so expensive brands, pretty budget price. And then he had a 75 liter backpack strapped sideways around his waist and it would sit on top of his bags. And that's different. Yeah, I suppose. Which means uh, he could never stand up and pedal up a mountain. Right. He could only he sit just, down. He was in his comfort, like Harley Davidson seat almost. Yeah. And, and he said when he, when he, when him and I split up after Whitehorse and he was going north to Dawson City and stuff that he left stuff behind at the, the host that we were staying with. And all of a sudden he could stand up on going up a mountain. He's like, Oh my God, this is fantastic. You know, yeah. it shows that even like mid tour, it's good that he's able to adapt. Yeah. And I suppose for both of you guys to be able to adapt to each other's schedules for a mutual benefit of what you deem to be like safety and companionship, which uh, both of those things can be priceless. Yeah. And we, you know, we had a good system. Like, he would actually be faster than me sometimes on the uphills because I just hate climbing hills. Like I just, mm-hmm. I just slow it down and just let it go. And if not, I wait for him at the top, or he would wait for me at the top. And then going down, as soon as I went down on my aero bars, and I was aerodynamic, and he was just this big hulking thing. Without pedaling, he I could come from behind and just blow past him like he stopped. And some of the big descents, I would just wait for him for five, ten minutes at the bottom and take some pictures, have a drink whatever and just chill out that's really yeah it's really interesting so your daily routine we've got to you setting okay. off it i get uh, up yeah i get yeah. up a bit late um usually on the bike by around seven between seven and eight and i would cycle oh it's hard to say you know i would just cycle until until i was just tired of cycling so that's interesting so I, i've heard i've spoke to other people about this because I, I set a goal I'll be like 20 kilometers and I'm having a break. And and sometimes I'll go over it if I feel great. Oh, yeah. Nine times out of 10, I will stop at 20, regardless of how I feel, because I've like rewarded okay. myself with that. So, and I'm gonna, so for me, I'm usually gonna, my yeah. goals, if there was like, let's say I was leaving a town. So there was a couple nights in the prairies where I slept in a town. Uh, there were some big storms in the area. And I said, oh, the next town is 85 kilometers away. I'll stop when I get there and have a Tim Hortons coffee. And so I'd get there and I'd have like a coffee and a donut or something, maybe have a little bit of lunch at the same time. By then I've already eaten a ton of granola bars or chocolate bars or licorice or jujubes, right? Or jujubes as we call them here in Canada. And I have no idea what that means. uh, Just some fucking, some, some (laughs) shitty, some shitty sugar candy um, that I love. And I would get to that town and I'd say, oh, okay, the next town's a hundred kilometers away. Yeah, I can make it today. So I'm going to hit that. And then if I got there and it was only dinner time, I'd say, okay, well, I'll ride into the night and I'll try to make it like another hundred K, you know? Right. So, okay. So I would so just. two big goals. Bigger goals. Set. Yeah. 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 And it's, it, I suppose it's you, your ability to be comfortable on the bike itself. And I, when you've described that, I can think of specific days I've done days like that. They're less than 10, like out of 500 days of my big bike trip, less than 10 times I've done, right, I'm going to do to the next town 100k away and just go. Mm -hmm. Uh, And only when the the conditions are favorable, where the wind's behind me or it's downhill or... But for you to consistently set goals, I don't think people realize how mentally challenging that is. It is. It Uh, is hard. Um, there are definitely days where 
I was frustrated because let's say I had a headwind and in my mind I had this bigger goal and, and I had spoken to my buddy Nemo who's been on the podcast a couple of times and I rode with him in Vancouver. Actually, my highest elevation ride of the whole year was in Vancouver before I started my tour. Uh, we did right. this thing called the Triple Crown, which is the three mountains just on the north side of Vancouver. And we cycled yeah, up the yeah. three mountains in one day and it was 110K, 2,500 meters of elevation. And that was my biggest climb of the whole year. So, yeah. But anyways, Nima and I had been talking about it and he said, you know, just giving me some motivation because some days, you know, were tougher than others. And he said, remember, don't push it too hard. Like, don't push big days into a headwind because you're just killing yourself for marginal gains. He says, make that yeah. your easy day. Take it easy. Rest more. Don't push such hard wattage and wait for the next day. And if it's better, make that your big day. You'll benefit more. I said, yeah, I know. I was thinking the same thing. It's just hard to think of it and do it, you know? It does. It impresses me because your mindset is very different to mine and to the point where when I'm traveling, I'm looking for any excuse to stop, like any excuse. Oh, and yeah? I, yeah, that's that. So when I'm on there, you've been with me for three or four days yeah, when yeah. we went through Cambodia. Oh, oh, there's a hammock there. Let's stop. Oh, that, that, that was beautiful, though. <laughs> and we slept for like an hour and a half. You were like, this is a bit different. Okay. And yeah, I'll have an hour and a half snooze. I love an afternoon sleep. Um, Don't get I me think, wrong. I, I, I do too. I'm, but I think part of my tour, right. this, this tour, I had... I had a lofty goal. It wasn't just a tour to tour, yeah. you know? And that's the difference. I, I was on a tour to try to make it back Same. to Ontario. Um, like Mei Hong San, I had given myself 10 days, including travel and rest in Chiang Mai to do this trip because um, I told my wife I'm going to be home. And so same it's, thing. A it's a mission. Same basically. thing, yeah. There's a yeah. bit of, like, it's fun. I'm seeing things. I'm meeting people. But... I also have this pretty big goal. I still count it as touring because I'm going places. I'm meeting people. I'm eating their food. I'm interacting. It just usually happens in those couple hours before I go to sleep, you know? Uh, and I, th I think we just get our kicks in different ways. Like yeah. you get a, a, a kick from the achievement you feel having pushed them big days. Mm -hmm. And then looking back over your map and seeing your stats and your numbers. And, and there's not like, for, for me, it's not as big a, I don't get as big a kick out of that. Um, I can do, but not in the same way, I don't think. And that's, that shows you the difference in humans, mm -hmm. how we can have different pleasures and how the, we're basically doing the same thing. We're traveling from A to B on a bike and we're doing it, um, yeah, fairly, it's very similar. That's why we're talking, mm -hmm. I suppose, on this on this podcast. But but the difference can be what, what makes you driven. Why are you what doing it? What makes you it? tick, your, yeah. What, yeah, like for me, it can be I'm doing this to film it. Like that can be my one goal. Mm -hmm. Like I'm doing this to create opportunities that make interesting things to film. And that's becoming and has become like mainly my primary goal, which some purists would be like, that's horrendous and self indulgent. Like, yeah, I remember, I remember just, reading some things that some people like you had this like discussions or something about somebody who is commenting on that and how you're ruining your own experience by taking all this time to film it because you're, and I was like, that is just ridiculous. Like do what you want to do, you know, like be yourself. Oh, exactly. And for him or for, for them, they'll be like, yeah, it would ruin their experience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that, and for me, if I had to keep up with you doing 200K a day, I think I could do a couple of days of it. I don't know if I could do 29 and still be happy. 
I had um, a few rest days in there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there okay. was five days off in the whole thing. Like I took two in Terrace and, oh no, sorry. I took one day off when it was raining really bad and I got a ride for about 150k with this couple and felt a little bit guilty as, as you do. And as you know, that experience of that feeling of like, well, I'm not being pure. I'm not being true to what my goal was by getting a ride. Right. And uh, I felt pretty guilty, but they were really cool. I stayed with them in their converted camper van thing. And uh, it was just a good day. And it rained the whole day. So, I mean, I probably wouldn't have got much cycling in, you know. And I wasn't on the same kind of mission as like somebody like Jonas Dykeman, where you have to do it all by pedal power. I was just on a mission to, to push my limits, test myself. And then I had a day off in Terrace, and I took three days off in Whitehorse. That was kind of the midway and it was good. it was well needed. I was I was getting pretty yeah. pretty beat by that. I think sometimes it's it's mental time off as opposed to physically. Mm-hmm. Quite often, it's just to be able to just sometimes wash your clothes and and walk because it's weird walking when yeah. you've not walked when you've ridden yeah. a bike for so long. Talking to you about your extra long challenges that you'll have, and and we could talk about the challenges you've got in the future later, um, but. It makes me also be intrigued of what my my body is able to do. Mm-hmm. I think you have a clearer idea of what your body is capable than I do. I I I don't think I've ever pushed myself. I, I, honestly, I feel like I've sat in a comfort. I've done lots of things that for some people would be like, "That's crazy. That's amazing." But physically, to me, I'm like, I think I've only got to like a six out of ten. Of, of what I've like been going for it. Yeah. Um, and maybe my hardest day, my hardest day was probably cycling out of Death Valley. And that's, that was a tough day purely because of the heat and the mm-hmm. amount of climb. Yeah. But could I have done it again? Yeah. I could have done, but I didn't because I went and did other stuff, you know? Yeah, so yeah. I, I, I'm, I've, I've seen a race which um, is coming up in the summer. It's called the GB Juro. It's the Great Britain Divide. Oh, yes. I've heard about this one. Yeah. So the divide, the, the obviously the Great Divides from Canada down to the Mexican yeah, border sure, yeah. to the USA. And every country is trying to jump on the bandwagon. And no, brand, exactly. Yeah, brand basically what's a cross-country effort as a divide, whereas the UK doesn't really have a divide, in, like a continental divide mm-hmm. in the same way. That, but anyhow, it's, it's, a, it's a hilly route that takes a lot of off-road. And I've entered... I've entered that yesterday. Did you? Good um, for you. Yeah. I, I, well, I've entered the application to do okay. it. And the the organizers, which are called the Racing Collective, and, and I actually don't know the person that runs that, but it would definitely be someone that would be interesting to chat to on the podcast because mm-hmm. their, their aim is to basically make it carbon neutral so nobody can fly to the event. Yeah, I heard that for this one. No flying to the event, which isn't weird because let's say you're from Canada and you want to come participate. How the hell do you get there? Like, that's not really fair. You can't expect somebody to take a tugboat across the ocean. But I get their point. I think what they're saying, and I, I fully see it from your point, and if I was was you i'd be a bit annoyed but, but, but well you could you could is, i could say no no i was going to paris anyways for to buy a to have a french hamburger and then i came in from paris cycling like i don't see your point <laughs> you could but I, I, th- I think that if when i read the thing the in the website they that it's all about the spirit yeah, of it yeah like so to do that would be not in the spirit of the of the the race and really what for them is like we want you to be really honest with us and truthful and because we can only, because you could, you could do that and people could, mm-hmm. 
But then there was a guy that lived, say, um, he lived in Andorra, which is a small country yeah. between France and Spain. And he cycled from Andorra to the UK to start the race. I know, it's pretty amazing. And they were like, they will we'll accept to people. They did accept an Australian pro cyclist, like a Tour de France cyclist, I think. Um, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he absolutely destroyed all the records by two days. And he's like set the benchmark. If This was a couple of years ago. Okay. So they've made, exception, they've made exceptions for people. But I no, think, that it, I think a, yeah, anyhow. So I've, I've entered that. And for me to just finish, <laughs> to finish on the finish line, I've got to do 200K a day for 10 days, which I've never done. Nice. So um, it's not till the summer. I was considering this summer too. There's um, there is the the BC Epic 1000, which is a thousand kilometers of gravel, probably more inclined towards mountain bike race. Yeah, but it starts on a Monday after I finish my last day of work on a Friday, oh, and great. I was like, perfect. It is perfect in that way, right? Yeah, <laughs> just gotta convince the lady over there. Um, yeah. but it might be possible. It might be thousand um, k. What would you give? Somebody like me, I've never entered a race. I've never done something long. What what top tips of Chris Panaski advice would you give me for someone that has a Brooks leather saddle, has a currently has a touring bike and a mountain bike? I've cycled over two hundred and I've done two hundred and forty k in a day. That's okay. my biggest day. But so I can I know my body can do it. I'm out of fitness, but I'd like to be where you are in a year's time. Where, what would you say big bits of advice honestly don't know I guess it's just a matter of pedaling so I mean I'm on the bike trainer uh, before this ride this summer because I thought it was going to Europe I was on the bike trainer a lot part of it comes down to the mental game and last year I was in a better place than I am this year in the sense that when I came home from work I was energized I felt good um, it could have to do with my work at the time like I had a good group of teachers I worked with which I still do have good group um, I had good classes overall. Now this year I have a much more messed up schedule. I have really tough classes at the end of the day and I come home and I'm mentally drained. So I'm not ready mm. to get on the bike and sit there for one to three hours, but you have to. So you just need to bike a lot. Um, I think yeah. you should be, if you want to be doing big, big days, you need to start biking 10 hours a week. Well, you I, don't have to build that up right to, away, but start at five and then bikes, I'd be doing 10 hours every two, uh, I'd do seven, five to seven hours a day. Yeah. But I mean, like throughout the, throughout the shitty seasons of winter, for instance, you need to be on your bike trainer being active and just maintaining at least, right. And make it, I'm or make it useful there. biking. So join I a program like Zoom or not Zoom. What the heck's it called there? Um, some of those online programs where you can Swift. follow Swift, Swift or I use Exert. It's a Canadian company, but there's no fancy video. It's just um, it just shows you the what you need to do and just get active and build those muscles and work on your endurance. Last year in May, I think I did a uh, a video call with this guy who organizes the eight hours of Hurton in Halliburton race. So it's a eight hour gravel race and I had gotten in touch with him, Instagram, I guess. And he said, Hey, we're planning to do the Saturday ride on our bike trainers and watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Are you in? And I said, <laughs> yeah, why not? So we all had our devices set up. So I had my, oh, wow. I was just pedaling at a constant pace. No, no, no dynamics or anything. 
And we all had Lord of the Rings on our computers. We had our laptops set up so we could all video call at the same time. And we just watched the Lord of the Rings trilogy for nine and a half hours. Jeez. And uh, I forget. It was just long. <laughs> <laughs> They're long either way. So, oh, man. end of the day, I had ridden 222 kilometers or something like that. And we just chatted and had a good time. You know, of course, you get off the bike and go for the washroom. My wife brought me a plate of food and I was just sitting there. I had set up some boxes because we had stuff packed to move. And on the box and I was just eating food as we went. And it, it was a great, it was a great day, wow. but it was solid training, you know. I think what was interesting that you started with is that you said you were fitter last year than this year. And I think that what people don't realize is how important your overall life picture is. 2020 has been a tough year for everyone. I don't think I was fitter. I think I was more motivated. <laughs> like since since the summer ended and the, the big tour ended, I, I came home and I haven't been riding as much. It's been harder to get on the bike possibly because I haven't set a goal for next year yet. So I think I need to set that goal. Um, I need to make it happen. And uh, I was still registered for the North Cape 4000 that's happening next July or this coming okay. July. But I asked them to postpone my entry because they had postponed them from 20 to 2021. And yeah. uh, But they had told me previously that I could possibly put it to the 2022. And I asked them to postpone it because I just don't see myself being able to go to Europe this summer. So that's the top of Norway to... Oh, this one starts in Italy. Uh, this year it starts okay. Lake Garda, Italy, and goes to the top of Norway. That's a beautiful start point. 4,000 kilometers, yeah. Amazing. I think this world, now you've described it, I, I feel quite intimidated by it. And I don't think I would... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm still a bit on the, on the fence with it, but... Um, we'll see. We'll see how the year goes. I think you'll have a good um, race next summer. If I get on. One thing I, I enjoyed, and it was a day that, you know, I thought would have been harder than it was, um, was my, my longest riding day ever. I hit 430, uh, sorry, 343 kilometers. 343. I broke the 300 mark in nine hours and 40 or 52 minutes or something. Where did you do that? What was the road? The prairies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was in the east to west. West to east. I had oh, a, west to east. Going home at this point. Yeah, I had a tailwind. Um, I mean, obviously, you have to have all the right conditions. There's very little elevation gain in the prairies, so I think over the whole entire day, I probably had you know over 343 kilometers. I probably had 800 meters of gain. That, yeah, it adds up when you do long days like that. So, you know, on a normal biking day of 100 kilometers, 800 meters, you're like, yeah, that's a tough day. But over 343, that's not very much. Yeah. Um, I averaged 30.1 kilometers for that first 10 hours, which was, it was fun. Like I was, I was having fun. I was like, holy shit, I could do this. 30K an hour is a huge achievement. Is that the hardest day you've done on no. that trip? The no, no, not the hardest. Um, what was the hardest day? Ooh, you would, you would know that place. Um, from, I think from Muncho Lake going yeah. up, heading east from Muncho on the Alaska highway, you hit the highest point on the highway and that was a lot of climbing, a lot of wildlife. So it was quite beautiful, but a lot of oh, climbing. Wildlife. What wildlife did you see? Um, that day, caribou, moose, rock sheep. Mm, the mountain goats. Did you see bison? 
Oh, bison, of course. Yeah, bison as well. Sweet. Or if, not, if I didn't see bison that day, I saw him the day before. I can't remember. Oh, um, so good. I never, I never saw any bison. No? Oh, so was a, oh, wait. No, you sorry. You didn't go that way. You didn't, never went to Mancho Lake. You cut down the cassia. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so you yeah. Did, did that sorry. on your way home. Is that on, on my your, way home? Your, yeah. It's because what, what's interesting is my longest day ever is not the hardest day. Like my hardest days were probably in Thailand going up the hills. Yeah, it depends I think on Thailand, your, your level of fitness. And the heat. And yeah. The humidity, the heat, mm-hmm. the, the tightness of the corners and the gradients. Um, whereas when I did my longest ever day, it was riding from the Sierra Nevada mountains in California, mm-hmm. just down a 200, 200 kilometer downhill and then up a mountain into Death Valley. Uh, the wind was so strong behind me, I hardly pedaled. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I felt like I was riding an e-bike the whole way, and I was like, this is sweet. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll say that the, the big day I did, um, the end of the day, as I was nearing the 300-kilometer mark, I was starting to feel the burn because I could see my average speed going down, and I was like, no, come on, I want to hit this 10, k- 10 hours, you know? So I was pushing it and I could start to feel the burn pretty good. And then after I broke the 300 kilometer mark, I just, I, I took it way back. Uh, not way back, but I mean, to a much more relaxing pace. Got to 343 and kind of regret not pushing 400. Honestly, like not, not because I couldn't have done it. I just thought 343 is a good number. And I found a place to camp. And oh, it's, it's there for another day. Well, if I would have if I would have kept going to four hundred, probably would in in hindsight would have been better because the next day was absolute shit weather, headwind, and everything. And if I had have pushed it to four hundred k, I would have felt much better just taking it easy the next day. But, anyways, that is that is life, and uh, it was good though. Either way. So, as well, we're we're now an hour and seven. How, how are you feeling as I'm far good. as time goes? I'm good. You're good. Yeah. Do you want, right? I'll I'll go back a bit more. Yeah, jump back into wherever you need to because I know we're a little bit all over the place. <laughs> Yeah. It sounds, it's, how do you think it's going? Is it going all it's right? It's good. Yeah. Cool. Let's talk. We have asked to answer some of the questions. Let's talk about your Touring Talk podcast. Okay. Okay. So your Touring Talk podcast, which do you want to explain it in case somebody hasn't yeah, mentioned it? Yeah, I, I came ep- up with the idea of, um, well, you co-hosted every one of them with me so far. So welcome back, Adam. Uh, <laughs> the Touring, touring Talk. talk these are the ones that you do on your oh, journey. Oh, no, no, no. Touring, touring Talk was, uh, uh, sorry, the, the Ridecasts. Your Ridecasts. I've got the terminology wrong. Yes. Mistake. Sorry, yeah. So the Touring Talks, I'll just quickly cover anyways. Uh, touring Talk ones are we did as just a kind of a, an info type discussion just to, to talk about various aspects of touring and hopefully provide people with information that helps them make the decisions they need to, whether it's cooking gear, sleeping gear, camping gear, bikes, whatever, whatever they need to choose to, to make their tour as good as possible. We've kind of just covering topics slowly. Um, the ride casts, I decided rather than write, um, journaling or write a blog so much, um, just to record a daily, a daily little podcast episode within my sphere of realm of bike to adventures and call it a ride cast. And they're usually, I think, between what, seven and 15 minutes, probably kind of thing. And just to talk about, you know, the challenges I faced on that day, what I saw, how far I rode, what kind of elevation I was doing, people I met. I don't know. I just talked about everything, but very unstructured. And 
Occasionally, I had to re-record them because I realized I was just rambling, as I probably am now. <laughs> but uh, do. in general, like I was a once through, just record, let my thoughts and uh, feelings be known, and that was it. And uh, do you? How have you found doing them? Do you do you find them in, uh, useful, enjoyable? Do you, do you think you'll continue to do them in the future? In the sense of like metrics. Um, I mean, in the sense of how it makes you feel, really. Oh, for me, More. yeah, I think I liked it. I liked uh, just being able to to look back and and even possibly, you know, in the future, have this as a, a part of a memoir, or maybe if I choose to write a book at some point, who knows? I don't have any thoughts towards that, yeah. but it's always good to have that information Capture there. Of a moment in time that's so accurate. Exactly right, and and you wouldn't have that. Like I just interviewed a guy who wrote a book. Uh, like literally interviewed him two days ago. He wrote a book that he had. On a t- of a tour he had done 20 years ago. And I was just like, how could you possibly know these things, you know, like yeah. specifics? And he said, well, I emailed every day. I sent an email to my parents and friends and it was pretty detailed. And I journaled and, you know, so it's a different world, different time. You, you couldn't just do voice memos on a phone, you know, that didn't yeah. exist 20 years ago. Yeah, it's good. It's really, yeah, I think that's something that a lot of people can put themselves under pressure to have to write a journal like it's the the old school way with some people it can be really useful i think mm-hmm. for themselves to process their own thoughts i found talking to myself talking to my phone would do the same and, and it was funny adam because as i was thinking up this idea to do ride casts you and, and like we hadn't even talked about it but we'd already you know been friends for a while and you started recording little daily podcasts <laughs> and I was like, motherfucker, he stole my idea. <laughs> he stole my idea that he hadn't, I, you hadn't told me yeah, about. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember at that time when I started recording very similar episodes, yeah. like and my, and my little recordings, I didn't stick with them. Now this is the difference between what I did and what you're doing is you've stuck to your channel and your providing wider value by interviewing other people and for me it was just me mm-hmm. as a form of just instead of writing a journal yeah exactly um, but i found because at that time i was like single and meeting up with uh, like a girl or something like that i wouldn't want to talk about that because mm-hmm. i would be wary if they ever found it and listened to it so i, I was self-editing what i would say and it wasn't a fully accurate version of my ah, journey okay so i'd been road for like 400 odd days by this point it's just my life um whereas i think you recording a 30-day journey is you're in that moment you're in that time you're not worried about anyone hearing it um so so i stopped recording it publicly but i continued recording audio notes myself because i enjoyed that aspect so i i have a podcast which is me from a year or two years ago but it's in my phone and no one's listened to it. It's just me talking to myself in my tent. Yeah, yeah. So I found it a really good little thing to do. I just wondered if it was just you. For those, I was fortunate. Because I use Podbean, um, on my app, I can actually also record directly onto the app and make episodes. So that's how I did these uh, these daily ones. Uh, in hindsight, I would have bought a little bit of a better microphone to take with me to plug in. Um, like something small even, like Samsung, Samsung makes some decent little plug-in mics or Rode lav mics. I use a lav mic right now, but it's not a great one. And uh, In hindsight, yeah. I might have got a – I didn't take it with me either, but maybe I should have. I think this could be a good question, which we haven't planned at all, is 
you've been doing your podcast now for two years. Almost, yeah. Yeah, almost two years. Um, what do you think, if you could go back to your um, apartment in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, where it so all started, a younger, a younger Christopher Panaski, and give him some advice now on what you've learned on, from podcasting, what tidbits would you give him? Oh, man, that was not in your I've questions. Put you, I've put, <laughs> it's not. I've, I've put you under it a bit there. So um, I, I don't know how I would do things differently. I mean, with regards to, to running the podcast, I'm pretty happy with the way it went. Um, maybe involving somebody like yourself or something earlier on just to to be able to produce more quality stuff and not burden myself as much because it is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Um, possibly... And I think this is really hard to do is to find a sponsor, a partner organization that wants to, that doesn't mind um, helping financially so I could have better equipment and stuff. Yeah, because a lot of people won't realize that this podcast costs you money to make. Yeah, so I spend, um, I mean, well, okay, the, the Bike Tour Adventures website, like, you know, the name, what do you call that thing? Anyways, the, the, yeah. The address, the web address, the web yeah. address is like what fifteen dollars a year, and then the website's another, whatever sixty, seventy, or eighty. I don't even remember. Hundred bucks maybe, um, and then Podbean costs me another hundred and twenty a year, and then you know buying new microphones, things like that. And then there's your time, which you and are the interviewing time. people, yeah. And you told about the time that you do in research. Mm-hmm. So I know it's not a job, but you're putting in hours that for some people would be a, like a job. Yeah, I would, I would say each episode, let's say if it takes one to two hours to prep an episode, depending on the person, depends how much I follow them already. So I know their story or not. Um, or like, you know, Corey, who I just interviewed. I mean, I had to read his book. So I read the book, which was great. He sent it to me. Uh, it was kind of that's the first. That's a, that's, that's, a, cool. that's a really nice oh, first. Yeah, that was a first. Yeah. So I read his book and then I looked through it again as I made my questions, refreshing my mind as I went through because I didn't do it all at once because I'm not that wise yet. But saving time with post-process editing, maybe if I, you know, I'm getting a better microphone, that'll help with a lot less having to to edit those vocals and sounds, things like that. I think um, just time, time's a factor. Yeah, I I think, yeah, if any sponsors, any bike companies do happen to listen to this because... Um, I know that, yeah, that if you do think there's a way you could um, work with Chris, this is your opportunity to reach out to us. That but obviously, you don't want to work with companies that you've got a similar vision, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or anybody that wants to give me money. Ding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, brilliant. No, I was just going to say, it's yeah, it's, it's hard to, to find somebody, you know, like it's got to be somebody who's like a bike company or, you know, somebody that has something to do. I don't want it to be, I've worked with some companies, you know, this summer I used wax on my key, on my chain. I didn't oil my chain. That's actually really interesting to talk about. So I took all my chains, including my wife's off her bikes and my mountain bike and every bike. And I cleaned them with degreaser, whether it was WD-40, engine cleaner, pipe cleaners between every cog until they were coming out fairly clean. And I ordered paraffin wax online and I took an old slow cooker and melted it and I dipped my chains in it and soaked them in it and then I hanged right. them up to dry. How was that? You know what? I loved it. Really? I was 3,000 kilometers into my trip. Chain falls off. I pick the chain up, put it on. Fingers are clean. No way. Oh, so amazing. Um, 
the only thing was is rain was a little tougher on it so it would start to squeak a bit so there's a company out of the states and you know what it's funny i don't have my i don't have that name on me in front of me but they make wax for bikes and i had emailed them and they said oh we'd love to help work with you and stuff that's cool and they gave me a 50 percent discount code so when i went online to order their stuff because it's from the states it was going to cost me more in shipping and stuff than i was saving so ultimately i just bought what i needed online on amazon which i hate doing because it cuts out you know they have to sell to amazon cheaper they're losing money on that yeah pretty you know just puts more money in amazon's pocket but for me like i'm not rich and i was already spending a fortune this year and uh so in the end i got my products off amazon Essentially, they have uh, they have a liquid you can use, put on a rag, wipe the chain. It kind of cleans it off somewhat. And then you have a, it looks like a deodorant stick of wax. And you open it up and you just run it on the top and bottom of the chains. Take your All fingers, right. run it through the, run it, run the chain through your fingers. So it squeezes it into all the, the little uh, riders. And then add a few drops of liquid around it and then just rub it in. And you're good for the next few hundred kilometers. Sweet. And I liked it. It was really smooth. Never had problems with really rusting. A little bit of squeaking here and there, but no different than Fedor who had to stop just as often to service his chain and have really yeah. mucky hands after, you know? And you, you often get people with internal hubs with roll-offs. They're always real smug about how great they are. And Belt drive. I, I've, never, I've, I've never ridden one. And... Um, it's, it's purely because they're expensive. That's the only reason why. I, I would happily ride one. For sure, me too. I, I just, yeah, I don't want to pay what would be for me the price of a bike on just one aspect off of the bike. But I can get the why. I do understand why. But yeah. these guys only do a bit of maintenance. They like put a bit of oil in it and do maintenance once every how many? Yeah. 10,000. You still have to service your chain, but it's not as much. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you have the belt drive. Yeah. I'm, I'm considering now is whether or not to just go with a single, single speed on the front, like no derailleur, just one chain. That's, that's what I've got on my mountain bike. Yeah. How do you like it? It's not as easy as pills, if I'm honest, but yeah. it's, and, and the wear and tear on that single, um, cog basically mm-hmm. is pretty intense. Okay. Um, it, it wears down quick. Where I live, it's grit stone. Okay. And I think it's the only place in the world that has grit stone, like everywhere. Yorkshire Dales are famous for it. So it was quick. The mm. mud and the grit and the, the – I, I took it to the bike shop only before it got to winter and I'd, I'd not ridden it much and it was like it needs changing. And it's like oh, wow. I can see but I've hardly ridden it. Mm. You know, it's, it's just – Meanwhile, on my BMC mountain bike – I'm on the same chain rings of when I bought it in 2000, the front chain rings as when I bought it in 2012, you know? It's probably better parts, steel parts. This is Shimano SLX. It's the lower end, but not too low, you know? Cool. Right. Shall we um, move on to, I've got a few questions, a few more questions here just to finish on your Canada trip. Um, I was going to ask you, and I think you've answered it a bit there, but what was the best piece of kit that you took on the journey? Um, and in addition to that, what would you leave at home next time? And what do you wish you took? There's kind of okay. three questions there. Uh, best piece of kit. If I had to say like bike component, I'm going to put that in two categories, bike component and 
stuff, you know, other things you're carrying. Mm-hmm. Uh, with regards to bike stuff, the aero bars. Oh, man. Like, just Best to... Best bit of kit ever. Oh, yeah. Just to be able to get off your wrists. Really? And just, like, you know, just to chill out. Your shoulders are much more able to support your body weight than your wrists are for 10, 12 hours a day or whatever it is. Interesting. I put on aero bars and with, I think... 60 or 70 millimeter risers. So in the total, it was like 120, 12 centimeters um, from the handlebars. And not the most aero thing, but comfort. So, I mean, mm. I could not have done what I did without those aero bars, just adding to the comfort level. And really I think it's something we're probably going to talk about in our next touring talk episode more, but really just takes a lot of strain off your upper body uh, off your wrists really um, i don't know if you've ever experienced that long days in a ride your wrists are you know you're taking breaks and you're like my wrists are sore I, i'm our, our body positions will be so different yeah, that yeah. i'm probably so much more in the saddle i'm so much further back yeah yeah so much a bit more like compared to you which is driving force through your legs mm-hmm. uh our body position is probably true, uh, true. wide the forces and the mm-hmm. different i think i i could be with like a, a, an old dutch cruiser almost yeah 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 <laughs> i know uh oh, what's his name should be is it tristan ridley tristan yeah a guy another guy interviewed he uses aero bars on his mountain bike you know he had a mid-fat bike yeah and he would ride it with aero it's bars too through africa yeah, he did Africa, and then he was in the South America until COVID somewhere in... Uh, I, I feel like he Instagram. made it to Chile or somewhere further, but yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, and um, I've, I've never spoke to him, but Ed Pratt on his um, unicycle... Had aero bars, yeah. Basically had aero bars, but mm-hmm. I don't know how it works on a unicycle. I think that'd be an interesting conversation to have with somebody. He didn't reply to me. I would, have, I would love to interview him, but he didn't reply when I messaged him. Come on, Ed. Fair one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's probably too busy. He's, uh, he's somewhere in Kazakhstan <laughs> with this girl there. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Okay, so that was the bike part. And the best off-bike piece of kit. Yeah. You know, it's something I really debated a lot. And I'm going to have to say my tent. Um, I have a sub one kilo tent. And I was really debating, do I spend the money and get a bivy bag for this because bivy bags tend to be about half the weight a good bivy bag is half the weight of my tent you know but i'm really glad i brought my tent because this year i don't know unlike many other years the bugs were just miserable for the whole summer um i didn't have a bug free night until i hit the prairies and there was enough wind so when you were sending messages like oh near teslin i had my my best camp spot i had all my bike trip through Canada was in this and this lake. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, every good lake I stop at, I spend the whole time in my tent after I do my roaming man food. Roaming man, I call it because you're eating your food as you walk at an exacerbated pace because you're, you're trying not to get bugs in your face. Roaming man, I like that. Roaming man food. Yeah, roaming man. Um, every meal, breakfast, there's, there's, lunch, there's and supper the, was spent. food, an outdoor food company there's the name of the food company <laughs> roaming man foods yeah yeah and yeah, um that's great so the tent yeah the tent was key like i i'm so glad i brought the tent well that's good yeah particularly in them conditions i can't i didn't when i was in canada i think the bug stopped by the time i got to whitehorse oh you're so, lucky 
you know, it's basically the whole of your journey. I'd have been book free. And we were there and at the same the time. Like you were, you were sending a picture saying, you were sending me a message saying, oh, a year ago on this date, I was at this in this lake just near Tesla. And I was like, shit, that's like five days from now, you know? That's, uh, you know, what could be global warming that night. And I almost tried to get to that. I tried to get to that lake when I left Whitehorse. I was trying to get to that lake in one day <laughs> from Whitehorse. It was, it was going to be a 245 kilometer day. But then I decided to, to detour to car cross and check it out. And then it just wasn't possible. I mean, um, yeah. What do you wish you'd taken or were you happy with your choices? Hmm. What do I wish? Oh, you know what I wish I would have taken was, um, my Merino wool long sleeve shirt. <laughs> it was some cold some days. Like it wasn't normal summer weather. It was, there was days where. I was riding, and I, I'm a naturally kind of cold guy, which is weird because, right, like my hands and feet get cold quite easy. But like there were days where I was so cold, and then I'd see Fedor in a t-shirt, or not a t-shirt, but he'd be like in a long sleeve shirt, no, no, no jacket on, and I had like, I only had a down jacket, and a raincoat and bike jerseys, so okay. So that so down jacket, too hot too I was either cold. too hot or too yeah, cold. Needed, yeah. I, the thing for me that solved that problem was sleeves. Mm-hmm. Oh, I had a pair of sleeves. The ones I brought were more designed for sun than for warmth. So they were very yeah. thin. They're almost the same material as a bike jersey. There was no fleece liner inside them or nothing. So my are in between, I think. Maybe actually they're quite wick, wicking, quite sweat wicking, similar, but that was from Korea I bought them because I remember. The, the people in Korea and in Japan love covering their, their faces don't yeah, they yeah sure they do yeah. Corona they, was they no problem for them I think, yeah they were they were wearing face masks before Corona made it cool I think we're almost coming to the end Chris um, I'll ask you a couple more questions there's like the closing ones really um, and this is one that I struggle with so I think it might be interesting to hear your thoughts and then we can just move on from there is how do you manage work life and relationship expectations with your desire to travel by bike it's challenging you know i think a, another guy uh, some it's funny how i can relate things everybody everything back to people i've interviewed but um there's a guy named chris bennett a canadian guy out of toronto and he said i asked him that question and he said well my wife has Did come you? he said my wife has come to understand well, i asked him like with reference to doing long biking tours he said my wife yeah. has understood that if i don't get to do all this biking that I'm a much grumpier, angrier, disgruntled person. And that by doing this, it keeps me in shape, keeps me healthy and keeps me happy. So we've come to that agreement. And I think Seema's kind of on that page. She knows it makes me happy. Um, I don't think she's keen to let me go for a year. So, but I have my summers. I'm a teacher. So yeah, I've got nine to 10 weeks off in the summers generally. So I think I can make most things work as like summer adventures. So yeah, there's that. She's she's okay with it. She's home working anyways. Now we've got the dog. And work? Uh work. Well I'm a teacher, so teacher's got a dream, job. A yeah. dream job. Yeah, get long summers off. Even your teaching day is, you know, we're we're actually at work for like six hours and forty five minutes a day. Mm. So most people go to work for eight to nine hours a day. We're we're at work significantly less. Um so that gives me time, but you know, the, finding the time to, to do the podcasting stuff is probably the biggest challenge. Since uh, since I came back in the summer, I've only released 
three episodes. I've been really slow this year. I, I kind of blame it on Corona. It's it's left a lot to do at home and it's mentally draining at work and stuff. So you come home and you're just not you're just not motivated to to do this, right? But I'm trying to make that change in 2021, get them released a little bit more regularly, get back on because it makes me happy. I just got to, you know, find the time to do it to to make it happen. I completely agree myself. My YouTube channel in 2020 actually grew and I did really not that much work on it. And it grew, I think, not because of me, but because of COVID help. It's like coronavirus it helped the traffic just like people were finding mm-hmm. older videos that I'd made. Yeah. So I'd done the work the years before. And then I think my most viewed videos are like 170 odd thousand now, which is, is crazy wow. like, for, for where I started from. Where, and it's, um, if I can, yeah, if I could grow this year as well, I think it's just consistency. Like you, you and, but it's consistent with what works with your life. Mm-hmm. And as long as overall, if you, if you're not happy doing it, you'll just stop doing it altogether. That's right. um, Yeah. One, I think, well, I think we've kind of touched on there. I was going to ask you what your goals are, but I think that's a pretty good goal is to, to add more episodes to be more consistent. Have you got any, and you touched on it earlier that you've got no biking goals for this year. Uh, um, Do you think you're going to have time to, to put any biking goals in this year or how do you see the year going? It's quite Um, hard to plan. Yeah. I do. Um, I have some smaller goals next summer, possibly. Oh, shit. What's going on on my computer here? Hold on. Possibly the BC Epic 1000. And it's it's designed kind of like the Great Divide. So there's no registration or there's no there's no payment. It's just you arrive, you show up on departure day or you could race that ride anytime you want. So like if I can't make it for that Monday or Sunday, whatever day it starts. I could just show up on the Wednesday or Thursday and start the race then or wait a month. It's yeah. Um, it's all what you record on your Garmin. It's a start to start to finish, nonstop. As long as your time doesn't stop, you're good to go. No outside help, that kind of thing. Um, mm. There's that. There's also a really cool... Um, somebody designed here in the Ottawa area a 700-kilometer bikepacking route that kind of comes right through where I live. So... Rather than start at their starter endpoints, I can just start where I live, cycle the route, and finish it. And I think if I do that, I will set some some pretty heavy goals too. I want to go fast, go hard, see, just enjoy it, um, but challenge myself. Have a look. Have a look into the fastest known time of that route. Yeah, I did. Um, I forget what it is off the top of my head, but it's a pretty new route, so it hasn't doesn't really necessarily have a super fast. So it's there to be had. It's there to be had. Um, then oh, there's good. a couple other little train. There's a couple things I want to do with my wife. Um, one is uh, there's this little ride called the Petit Train du Nord, which is the little train of the north. There used to be a train that goes from Montreal area to Mont Tremblant, which is the biggest ski hill in this region. And then it goes another twice that distance again, about 400 kilometers total. And I thought it'd be really nice to go bike this old rail trail. Uh, with my wife and just do it as a nice little bikepacking tour together. So that's that. brilliant. So I'll give her, you know, 400 kilometers. We should be able to pound it out in two days. And no, <laughs> it'd be like a week. <laughs> Seam is going to love that. I think what I love about them goals is, and I think this is just a nature of um, this, the world as it is now, 
is all of your goals are local. They're mm-hmm. all like, and, and I think if COVID hadn't have happened, I don't think that would be the case. That's true. I think yeah. you'd probably have other international goals. And as far as I am sat here looking towards Canada, having cycled there, you live in one of the best places in the world to ride your bike. Mm-hmm. Like you are so lucky. But when you live there, you can take it for granted. Yeah, you do. And, yeah, it's like every country. And the same, there. the same can be said for the UK. I, I like. I genuinely know so many other countries better than the UK, as in cycling wise. And and I want to change that this year. I really want mm-hmm. to just get get to know my own country. So I think that's yeah. something we should all definitely push now is travel local. And well, you know, like right outside my back door, five hundred meters away is the is the the provincial park is there and it's 380 square kilometers of trails forest and it's just there like you know 380 square kilometers it's huge there's 200 kilometers of groomed cross-country trails you know wow like cross-country skiing trails in the winter and then the summer it's all hiking and biking trails just that's amazing mm -hmm. so so i'm happy for where i live and happy that you know we we got lucky with covid in the sense that we got the place we got yeah Uh, if we would have been one month later the prices went crazy here everybody wanted to get out of the cities yeah we got lucky the people sold because they thought shit covid's gonna destroy our chances of selling and getting into our other property that we own so they sold if they had waited one month we couldn't have afforded to buy this house right it's crazy it's crazy how things work yeah. out sometimes. Other than that, too, I was going to say um, some kayaking and canoeing. So my, my aunt lent me her sit-on-top kayak uh, while I decide what I would like to buy. And I want to get out with my dog and do some uh, kayak adventures with her. That's yeah, great. That's, that, that'll oh, be summer like that. 2021. Oh, mega. Well, let's, uh, let's see where we're at this time next year. Let's uh, let's revisit mm-hmm. ourselves in some way, even if it's uh, not on the podcast or if it's on my YouTube channel or either way. We can definitely. I think it's good to to kind of check in and just look back on the year. Um, one last question for mm-hmm. you, Chris, and this is an opportunity to try and uh, hopefully get somebody that you've always wanted to get onto the podcast. We've already mentioned a few people, but who, if you could get any like dream guests and i know that they're probably going to be linked to cycling so barack obama might be a bit out of uh, the mm-hmm. realms of thought or whoever you choose to get but um who would you who would be a dream my guest? hero lance armstrong <laughs> <No>. uh, <laughs> <laughs> do you know in all seriousness he'd be really fascinating oh, yeah, he would be amazing to have on the show um i think you know and I, I know he's been on, like, We Need More Heroes. Sean Conway would be really interesting. Um, I'll be looking forward to having Jonas on again after he finishes his current adventure. Um, oh. oh, is he is he done his lap around Germany? Is that what he's currently doing? No, no. He's doing a triathlon, around 120 times triathlon around the world. So, yeah. Oh, damn. Oh, I missed that. He's, yeah. He swam 450 kilometers down the coast of Croatia. Right. Um, so that's more than twice what Sean Conway cycled along the coast in the UK. Like, just to give it perspective, it's the newest world record, I guess. Unsupported. Wow. Uh, now he's somewhere in Turkey and he's heading up towards Russia and then Siberia through winter. And oh, then, is he bi- biking? Now he's biking, yeah. And then he's going to sail across yeah. the ocean and then run across America. So, nuts. It's going to be interesting to see how COVID 
Yeah, uh, yeah. So how, that's going to—it's definitely going to affect. But, you know, I can't think of the top of my head uh, who I would like. We mentioned we mentioned Ed Pratt earlier. That would be nice. Be, yeah, it'd be a really interesting perspective to have him on the show. Mm-hmm. I think what he did is outstanding, and his his filming is definitely, I think, from from my opinion, is probably the best on. It's probably the best single series of a A to B, which was basically around the world yeah. that 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 exists in the biking type world on YouTube. Cycling and Superman think, would be another good one. Yeah, I think he's uh, Will Will Hodson. I think his name is, but I think he's at the moment looking after his. I think it's either his, his mother or his father. father I think it's his father. Think, yeah, is 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 ill. I think he's got dementia. So mm. I think he's taking a. And the world has definitely made, made the world difficult. I think his bike's still in Japan. Um, I saw him post the day on social media. Oh, saying, yeah? Bike's still, yeah, he said, my bike's still in Japan and I'd love to keep going. But um, yeah, if you're finished there, mate, I think um, that, that was really interesting. I hope that your audience now know Chris Panaski better. Yeah, maybe they do. Maybe they don't. <laughs> have, you, have you got any closing uh, things you want to say? Anything you think we've missed out? None. Not in particular, no. I mean, I guess ultimately the uh, the only thing I can say about the bike tour this past summer is my initial goal was to make it all the way home in Ottawa, and I got to Winnipeg. Um, something we didn't talk about why I stopped in Winnipeg, but I when I reached Winnipeg for the last couple of days, I'd started to have a little, as you Brits use the word niggle in my knee. What would you say? Or do you don't call it niggle? Just, uh, just a weird pain. I don't know. We don't have a nice little word like niggle. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I didn't know when that. I say I, that's I Canadians, know. I was like, I had a niggle in my knee. They're like, oh, a what? <laughs> I didn't know that was English. I just but it's that a was perfect common. word. You guys, you know, you're, you're ever so eloquently with the, the English language, I guess, because you invented it. Um, but uh, yeah, so a couple days before I reached Winnipeg, I was starting to have this little itch in my knee a little niggle here and there and sometimes it'd be like 30 minutes or so and i just try to readjust on my seat and i got to winnipeg and i had five days to make it to my parents house which is in northern ontario which is 1500 kilometers away and i was like wow. i don't know if i could push five 300 kilometer days especially hitting the canadian shield like which is a lot more hilly you're out of the prairies i mean i could be honest i, don't, I really don't think i could have done it so and I thought if I did push it and I did manage it, I'm risking long-term recovery to my knee because definitely something was, it was getting to the point where it needed a rest. So in Winnipeg, I had a, one of my old classmates from teacher's college, her family's from there. And I messaged her and I said, hey, do you have friends or family that would let me put my tent in their backyard? And she said, let me cut touch with my parents. She actually lives in the UK now in Brighton. And... Um, hmm. She's got in touch and said, my parents are home. You can sleep in their basement in the spare room. So they set me up and I had a one day off and I thought, okay, I should find a, find a flight home because definitely with one day off, that means four days to do 1500K. It's becoming less and less possible. My parents said they were willing to wait, push one more day before they drive to Ottawa. So I could have had five days still, but I thought it's, it's just not worth the risk. I'm not, you know, I'm not out to set a record. So there's no need to kill mm-hmm. myself in the process. Uh, save it Wise. save it for another day yeah so i guess that's one thing that comes with age mm. 25 year old chris would not have waited and would not have called it a day to possibly save injury he would have just pushed through yeah. it and uh, and then maybe been six months recovering with knee injuries right you know your body the older you get i think and you know what you can, you know what your body's mm-hmm. capable of yeah. i think that's 
you've definitely proven that with the things you've done. So it makes me think though too, is like, okay, if I wanted to do something longer, harder, farther, what did I need to change on my bike? What is not quite right? So that's maybe where you start looking at a professional bike fitting because I never did that. I just right. use my experience in my own field, but maybe there's some things that are not quite right. That's where that would come in. Yeah, that would be interesting to see what they'd say and mm-hmm. how they'd change things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like you had an epic summer, e- even with the whole COVID and everything else. It was a and good summer. Yeah, do you know, like hats off to you for that journey because it's, it's to have done what you've done, to have put out the podcast, the uh, the ride casts, and I've read your blogs on your website um, on Bike Tour. Is it BikeTourAdventures.com? Yeah. Yeah, it's really and the photos are great. I, I, it brought back so many memories already, like of my. It, like you say, it feels like a long time ago now, and one day it'll be a distant memory. So it's great that you've got all them audio recordings to capture it. I think we've got to understand how privileged we are. Like, and I don't mean that as a like white savior type of way, but I mean in in the sense. So, so when I, I go to Kenya, I'm working with these Kenyan guys. They get paid pretty well as far as the Kenyan average salary goes because they're working with a defense company and they're doing technical jobs. Mm-hmm. And I asked these guys, oh, have any of you guys climbed Mount Kenya? And Mount Kenya is the second biggest mountain in Africa, just below Kilimanjaro. Massive. It, it dominates the sky a bit like Denali does in Alaska. It's just huge. And I was like, they're like, no, no, the yeah, Mazungos, Mazungos do that. That basically means the white men do that. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, anyone can do that. And they're like, oh, we have to go to work. We've got family to feed. We've got to... So for them, they've got so many priorities, which are real life, like mm-hmm. feeding their family, keeping a roof, keeping the cattle fed, the chickens fed, all going to work and providing. Climbing up a mountain in Kenya. For fun. That they see every single day for fun. They're like, nah, if I die up there or if I you know, or whatever, if I, I just can't take the risk of going up there mm-hmm. and it's expensive to have the kit uh, or a guide or whatever. So they, for these guys, like, even though they see it every day, for them, it seems out of reach. And that's in Kenya, but it's the same in, in UK and Canada and mm-hmm. lots of other communities where um, I grew up in a working class background. And if I was to say to my parents, oh, why don't you go on a bike trip? They'd just be like, that's stupid. But it's not Get a thing. job, get a pension. Start a family. Exactly do that. it when you retire. I think adventure, in that sense, is is privilege. Is is mm-hmm. our ability because because back in the day we'd have been busting our backs over over crop fields and what <laughs> on the yeah, rest. Yeah, yeah. Whereas now we're sat in our comfortable worlds and we're like we want that adventure. We want to feel the pressures, so we'll go and put ourselves and we'll cycle the Cassia Highway, and it is is amazing for us to do that and we can do that but really we're lucky we're lucky yeah, that we yeah, can yeah. Um, cool bro i think i think we've done two hours there yeah that let's uh let me hit end there so good talking thanks for interviewing me adam mate i really enjoyed that we'll do that again sometime i hope to get it up in the next month <laughs> <laughs> right i'm just gonna press stop recording yeah me too Hey everyone, before we end this podcast, I'd like to tell you about some of Bike Tour Adventures' other amazing partners. I'm very proud to be supported by Brockton Cyclery, a Toronto-based bike shop dedicated to bike touring and bikepacking. Carrying many of the top bike touring and bikepacking brands, I can honestly say that they have helped me to build the most durable and fast 
bikepacking bike possible. We're also supported by Race Day Fuel. Their mission is to ensure that you consume the very best and appropriate food and beverage for the task at hand. Working with top brands such as Scratch, Noon, and Untapped, they have all your nutrition needs taken care of. For discount codes, check out the show notes or go to the Bike Tour Adventures website. So that was our podcast for today. I do want to just take a minute to thank Adam for for taking the time to prepare this podcast because it's definitely a lot of work. And um, it was nice for me to just not have to prepare one for once, uh, save me a couple hours of my life. Thanks, Adam. And I really appreciate it. And I can't wait to have you on the show again, whether it's co-hosting another podcast, touring talk or something else. So let's keep our options open and uh, all the best and talk soon. Bye. Hey guys, I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I've received from you. It really motivates me to keep going with this project and to share people's amazing stories. If you have comments or questions, please email me at info at biketouradventures.com or go to www.biketouradventures.com and shoot me a message through the contact form. I do get a number of emails. Not a ton, but I really do like taking the time to answer them for people. And I think it's just a great way to interact with uh, with listeners. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, blog posts, videos, and the new touring tips page. Uh, the touring tips page was designed to be like a go-to place for people interested in bike touring or bike packing and not sure where to start. So it kind of just got it all sectioned out. It's not super pretty yet. I'm working on improving it, but... I think it's a great place to start. On top of that, I've uh, started to integrate the Touring Talk podcast episodes into the Touring Tips page so that you can also just kind of listen to Adam and I banter on about certain things and certain topics. And I think that's kind of fun too. Uh, If you're enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can also be one of my show supporters by going to www.patreon.com slash bike tour adventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help it by sending a one-time donation through gofundme.com slash f slash bike dash tour dash adventures. And this money goes back into the podcast, allowing me to pay for for all the associated annual fees, purchasing better equipment, and try to produce as good a quality content as possible. So if that's uh, something you're interested in doing, I really appreciate it. And if not, whatever. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and keep on pedaling. Bye-bye. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated and keep on pedaling.